Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 1. The Hammer of the Witches. Many persons of both sexes, unmindful of their own salvation and straying from the Catholic faith, have abandoned themselves to devils, and by their incantations, spells, conjurations, and other accursed charms and crafts, have slain infants yet in their mother's womb, have blasted the produce of the earth, the grapes of the vine, the fruits of the trees, nay, men and women, beasts of burden, herd beasts as well as animals of other kinds. They blasphemously renounce that faith which is theirs by the sacrament of baptism, and at the instigation of the enemy of mankind, they do not shrink from committing and perpetrating the foulest abominations and filthiest excesses to the deadly peril of their own souls. An excerpt from the Papal Bull of Innocent VIII, 1484. Others think that, after she has been consigned to a prison in this way, the promise to spare her life should be kept for a time, but that after a certain period, she should be burned. Another opinion is that the judge may safely promise the accused her life, but in such a way that he should afterwards disclaim the duty of passing sentence on her, delegating another judge in his place. An excerpt from the Malleus Maleficarum. For how many of the blind, of the lame, of the withered, of those ensnared by diverse infirmities legally swear that they strongly suspect that infirmities of this kind, both in general and in particular, have been caused by witches? From the writings of Henricus Institutorus, Dominican friar and papal inquisitor. If Institoris does not withdraw with all speed, you, father, should say to him in my place that more than enough scandals have arisen because of his bad trial, and that he should not remain in his place, lest anything worse should follow from this, or happen to him. An excerpt from a private letter, from Bishop Golser of Brixen to a local priest, in the aftermath of the Innsbruck witch trials. Welcome to the History of Witchcraft, the podcast history of sorcery, magic, and spells. My name is Samuel Hume, and this podcast will attempt to string together the whole history of witchcraft, from ancient and classical periods, through the medieval and early modern eras, and into the modern day. The belief in magic and witchcraft has existed in every recorded human culture, a way to explain the inexplicable to turn random acts of nature into conscious acts of mortal or supernatural beings, and in the worst cases to allow desperate communities to take revenge against the suspected perpetrators. This podcast attempts to understand the cultural motivations behind these beliefs. In the course of the podcast, we shall see how various authorities and regions reacted to calls for witch trials. We shall hear the stories of particular victims of witch hunts throughout history. The history of witchcraft is a history of fear, greed, envy and wrath, of superstition, and of the worst parts of human nature. To me, 
that makes it a subject worth learning about, and if you agree, then I invite you to join me in this history of witchcraft. This first episode will be devoted to arguably the most influential, and certainly the most famous, publication calling for the trials of witches, the Malleus Maleficarum. As with most things that historians like to talk about, the importance of the Malleus Maleficarum to the course of the early modern witch hunts is disputed and debated. The text, which translates to either The Witch's Hammer or The Hammer of the Witches, was published in 1486 and remained in print throughout Europe and beyond until the modern day. While being disputed by scholars and theologians ever since its publication, going so far as to being publicly discredited by the Inquisition, The Hammer of the Witches was incredibly popular with the laity, with some sources putting the number of copies sold just below those of the Bible. Due to its importance for the later episodes, today's show will focus on the text itself, as well as the individuals thought to have authored it. Heinrich Kramer, Latinized to Henricus Institoris, which is the name we will use, and Jakob Sprenger. Another scholarly debate is over the extent of Sprenger's involvement with the writing of the Malleus, with some historians simply ignoring him when discussing the text. Henricus Institoris was born around 1430 in the town of Schlettstadt in Alsace, which was then part of the Holy Roman Empire. In 1445, Institoris entered the Order of the Dominicans, and greatly benefited from the education on offer. Like all Dominicans, Institoris studied the arts of debate, philosophy and logic, training him with the skills he would need as a Dominican friar. After this four-year course, Institoris graduated with a Master of Arts in Theology. His education, however, did not end there. Showing particular merit, Institoris was allowed to continue his learning, most likely in Cologne, and he aimed for a Master's of Theology, which took at least 14 years of study. This does not, however, mean that he spent all 14 years in Cologne. As a Dominican, he was expected to spend at least five years teaching before he could receive his degree, with Dr. Hans Brodel estimating that Institoris spent at most three or four years in Cologne, the rest of his time spent travelling and preaching. Even while his career took him around Europe, he still found time to study, and achieved his doctorate in theology in 1479. The first notable brush with heresy that we know Institoris had was in 1458, when he assisted in the trial and execution of the Valdensian bishop, Frederick Reiser. Just under a decade later, in 1467, Institoris was appointed to a papal commission against the Hussite heretics in Bohemia and eastern Germany, and appears to have wielded substantial power in this position. Rudolf, Bishop of Ratislava, Papal Legate, and the head of the Papal Commission Institoris was part of, delegated to Institoris the power to remit people's sins and to grant indulgences. He also appeared to have the authority to place interdictions on recalcitrant heretics, as shown by a letter in 1471 when Institoris agreed to lift such an interdict that he'd placed on the town of Lipsic. Institoris must have made a very good impression of the powers that be, as in 1474 he became a papal inquisitor with a vast jurisdiction. Most inquisitors were assigned to a particular province or region, whereas Institoris could practice his authority wherever he wanted, provided he had the permission of the pre-existing inquisitor, if one was present. After four years, he was further promoted 
to the role of Inquisitor for Upper Germany, a position to which he was renewed in 1482 alongside his future colleague Jakob Sprenger. For a brief time, Institoris was also appointed to the position of prior of the Dominican convent to which he had first joined in Schlettstadt, although he did resign from this position after only two and a half years, possibly to focus on his role as a papal inquisitor. Institoris's zealotry against the enemies of orthodoxy was noteworthy, even among the Dominicans. Alongside the usual targets of heretics and witches, Institoris spoke out against the reforming figures within the church, as well as the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick III, who he accused of infringing on the rights of the papacy. Such a stance, combined with his apparent success in his role as inquisitor, led to praise from his superiors. Pope Sixtus described Institoris as a man who should be commended for his, quote, zeal for religion, knowledge of letters, integrity of life, constancy of faith, and other praiseworthy virtues and merits, end quote. However, not everyone was quite so wowed by the stubborn inquisitor. I just mentioned that Institoris had spoken out against the emperor. What I should have said is that Institoris slandered Frederick III, who was of course not best pleased, and when Institoris was proposed as a papal inquisitor in 1474, he was on the brink of being jailed. Only the support of the Master General of the Dominicans, as well as the Pope, saved him from this fate. Institoris had a talent for causing strife among his fellows, as well as the secular authorities. A year into his role as inquisitor, Institoris was involved in a dispute with two other Dominican friars over the theft of some money, a dispute which does not appear to have been fully resolved as four years later, Institoris brought charges of slander against his opponents within the order. More significant issues arose in 1482, when the Inquisitor was suspected of embezzling funds collected to fight the Turkish expansion in the Balkans. Despite claiming that they were only resting in his account, Institoris was ordered to Rome to explain himself under threat of excommunication, imprisonment, and the stripping of his wealth and titles. Sadly, the result of the inquiry is unknown, but Institoris was clearly not convicted of anything serious as he was back on duty within the year. However, no one ever trusted him with financial matters again. It is possible that these difficulties led to his prickly personality, one that rejected any form of criticism, slight or serious, as a means of defence against his numerous enemies. His attitude, while making him a nightmare to work with, did not interfere too much with his career, as he kept his position as Inquisitor until the day he died, which was most likely in 1505. By 1480, Institoris focused more and more on the dangers presented by witchcraft, and began a vigorous round of prosecutions of the crime. In 1490, he claimed that he'd been responsible for the conviction and execution of over 200 witches, although this is more than likely exaggeration. While he was most certainly involved in numerous trials, of which we know little, the only two that have substantial evidence are the trials of Ravensburg and Innsbruck in 1484 and 1485, respectively. In Ravensburg, Institoris arrived and immediately began to preach against witchcraft. His preaching worked, and the townsfolk accordingly denounced Hexen. A number of people were arrested, and in the end, eight women were burned at the stake. In Ravensburg, he had received the expected support from the authorities, but there was still some resistance to the expansion of inquisitorial activity. 
As such, with the witch threat dealt with, Incitoris returned to Rome to gain further authority for his activities. By this point, Pope Sixtus IV had been succeeded by Innocent VIII, who was just as supportive as his predecessor. Innocent provided Incitoris with a papal bull, a declaration of the Holy See's will, which expressed the true danger of witchcraft and demanded that all Christian authorities assisted his inquisitors in prosecuting these heretics. Failing to do so would lead to excommunication. Six months later, the Pope wrote to both the Archduke of Austria, Sigismund, and the Archbishop of Mainz, thanking them for their support, but requesting that they continue supporting Instatoris, as well as providing him with protection from retaliation for his actions in Ravensburg. Clearly, not everyone was pleased with his method of doing God's work. After receiving the papal bull, Instatoris returned to Germany, stopping off at Innsbruck, capital city of the Tyrol region. Innsbruck was an important town, both in terms of trade, as well as its position as the home of the Archduke of Austria. Instatoris claimed that their region was full to the brim with witches, and so he began his work there. But it is just as likely that he was simply eager to get started, since Tyrol was the first stop on the road from Rome within his jurisdiction. As was right and proper, Instatoris presented himself to the local bishop, a man named Golser, and requested his consent and support for his activities. This was more than likely a foregone conclusion. Instatoris had clear support from the Pope, and so the bishop was unlikely to refuse the Inquisitor's requests, despite Golser's personal opinion that Instatoris was senile and unhinged. The papal bull was distributed throughout the region, offering an indulgence of 40 days for those who would denounce any witches. In concert with this reward, leaflets and posters were published around churches and town halls, demanding that anyone with knowledge of witchcraft come forward, threatening both secular and spiritual punishment for those who did not. This carrot-and-stick approach would later be recommended in the Malleus as common practice. At this point, Instatoris's investigation showed none of the normal traits of his prosecutions. There was no mention of satanic pacts or intercourse with the devil. Instead, Instatoris focused solely on the misfortunes caused by witchcraft, as well as the rumours about members of the community with a reputation for sorcery. People were advised to come to Instatoris, and I quote, If anyone knows, has seen, or heard that any person is suspected of being a heretic and witch, and particularly of practising things which do harm to people, cattle, or the fruits of the earth, end quote. Throughout his time in Innsbruck, Incitoris preached to the masses about the dangers, signs, and protections against witchcraft, and combined with the propaganda from both the Inquisitors and the authorities, a vast amount of testimony was soon available. From this, the findings were narrowed down to a total of 50 people being indicted for witchcraft. So far, so good, right? Well, for reasons unexplained, Incitoris then delayed proceedings for three weeks before revealing a second list of suspects only 14 persons long. Some of these suspects were on the original list, but new names were included. And with this in hand, Instatoris began his trials. The interrogation of one of these suspects, Helena Schuberin, has thankfully been preserved with a relatively large amount of detail. We know that Helena was an outspoken woman, who had no qualms about speaking her mind, which was not the best thing in a 15th century German woman. 
The formal charges that had landed her in front of Instatoris and the Innsbruck notables state that, after passing Instatoris in the street, she spat at him and declared, quote, Fee on you, you bad monk. May the falling evil take you. End quote. To make matters worse, in Instatoris's eyes at least, Helena had avoided his sermons against witchcraft and suggested that others do the same. The one sermon she did attend involved her loudly declaring that Instatoris was an evil man doing the devil's work. Can we guess how well that went down with the self-aggrandizing, holier-than-thou, heretic-hating Inquisitor? Not helping Helena's case was her reputation for sorcery. She mingled with other suspected heretics, had supposedly sickened another woman in order to have an affair with her husband, and was rumoured to have murdered a knight she'd once been spurned by, through magical poison. In a trial headed by Instatoris, this was an open and shut case. Helena would soon find herself on the pyre. Except, Instatoris appears to have taken this case to prove his own theories about the nature of witches generally. For him, she was a testament to the immorality that was always tied to witchcraft. A woman who did not know her place was rumoured to be promiscuous and capable of maleficium. Instatoris decided that he would begin the trial by questioning Helena about her sexual history, in such detail that it made his fellows blush before Bishop Golsa's representative demanded he cease this line of questioning. Instatoris then questioned Helena about her testimony, but conducted himself in such a manner that the other commissioners called a halt to proceedings out of offence. When they reconvened, Instatoris was horrified to discover that a new addition had been made to the court. A lawyer. Imagine that, the defendant getting legal advice in a fight for her life. Well, I never. The lawyer, Johann Merway, began to point out the myriad of faults Instatoris was making in this case, and demanded the charges be dismissed. All 14 of the Innsbruck suspects were released, which made Instatoris very cross indeed. Instatoris was certainly of the mind that female sexuality was inextricably linked to witchcraft, hence the prevalence of women in his trials, as well as the focus on women in the Malleus. This was just obvious to the Inquisitor, but had led to his efforts being squandered when the rest of the commission, who he was meant to work alongside, had found his line of reasoning seriously flawed. Not one to listen to others, Instatoris remained in Innsbruck for months, collecting evidence and harassing suspects and witnesses, even attempting at one point to kidnap a witch or two on his own. It was around this time that Golsa had enough, advising Instatoris that he was unable to ensure his safety if he kept being such a nuisance. Intermediaries reached out to Instatoris to beg him to just leave, just go away and stop being a menace. But the stubborn Inquisitor only left after Golsa, rather bluntly, told Instatoris that, quote, he was to do nothing further in his diocese save leave it, end quote, and threatened to have him forcefully expelled. Instatoris left Innsbruck full of angry citizens, angry officials, an angry bishop, and, as Hans Brodel put it, a thoroughly perplexed archduke who hired two prominent doctors of law to explain this whole witchcraft business to him once and for all, end quote. This was the time when Instatoris began to write the Malleus Maleficarum. If those fancy lawyers with their rules were going to interfere in his trials with their laws and their procedures, 
he would make his own, which is oddly admirable in its own stubborn, misogynistic way. This is when Jakob Sprenger enters our story, again. Sprenger was an esteemed academic and theologian, much more so than Instatoris ever was, even before words spread about his conduct in Innsbruck. Like Instatoris, Sprenger had joined the order at a young age, and in 1468 he was lecturing at the University of Cologne even as he worked on his masters. By 1478 he was a professor in theology, and two years later he was dean of the faculty. He had spearheaded the cult of the rosary in Germany, after having a vision from the Virgin Mary exhorting him to do so. Sprenger had been elected to numerous important and notable positions within the Dominican order, and in 1481 became an inquisitor in the Upper Rhine area, working alongside Instatoris. Their working relationship was not a great one, as Instatoris's reputation for difficulty made him few friends. Sprenger's career was much more respectable than Instatoris's, who ruffled feathers wherever he went and had a tarnished past. The whole embezzlement thing hadn't really gone away. How much input Sprenger truly had in the Malleus is debated, he seems to have written in the preface of the text, but the rest reads as the same style of writing and appears much more in line with Instatoris's personal beliefs, as shown in his behaviour, than it does Sprenger. Hans-Peter Brodel, whose book, Malleus Maleficarum and the Construction of Witchcraft, has provided much of the contents of this episode, argues that Sprenger's involvement was certainly much less than Instatoris's, whereas other historians, such as Christopher McKay, who has authored a brilliant translation of the Malleus into English, is quite scathing in his arguments against the idea that Instatoris wholly fabricated Springer's involvement. Regardless of who wrote what, in 1486 the manuscript was complete, and so Instatoris sought to give his new codex a seal of approval from an academic institution. He found such approval from members of the same faculty as Springer at the University of Cologne, with four members signing that the first two parts of the text were in line with sound Catholic philosophy, and that the third part was an acceptable procedure for future witchcraft trials. A second endorsement came from many more signatories, but was much more vague in its praise, not referring to the Malleus at all, actually, just commending Instatoris for his zeal, and praising the Inquisition's efforts against the threat of witchery. Whether or not some, or all, of these academic endorsements were forged, is still debated. Instatoris then inserted the papal bull of 1484, misrepresenting Pope Innocent's words, which had been strictly related to the specific inquisitorial investigation that he was in the process of conducting, as a full endorsement of the entire text. Going further, Instatoris requested the support of Maximilian, the future emperor, although he doesn't provide the actual text, leading to Professor Wolfgang Berlinger to surmise that Maximilian's response was too negative to spin, even for Instatoris, and so he simply implied that the future emperor had agreed with his work. So when Malleus went to print, it appeared to have the endorsement of the highest secular, ecclesiastical, and academic authorities in Christendom. The fact that these supposed supporters quickly distanced themselves from the rogue inquisitor, and that many of the Malleus's procedures were directly contradictory to standard legal practice, did not stop the book selling like hotcakes. The Malleus Maleficarum presented witchcraft as a worldly struggle between good and evil. Church doctrine had always considered it a grievous sin, 
But definitions of maleficium had always been vague and often contradictory, and it had never been seen as a true crisis set to overturn society. For many clergymen, the sin of witchcraft was in the belief in its power. Such belief detracted from the omnipotence of God, and so was heretical. The Malleus, however, declared that witchcraft was indeed real, and had real power over the world. Having suitably defended its position, the Malleus Maleficarum then explained how witchcraft took place, what the signs were, and what defences were available against sorcery. The third section gave investigators a thorough guide to how to identify those guilty of witchcraft, the best way of interrogating them to admit their crimes and reveal others, and what their punishments should be. In regards to defining witchcraft, the Malleus Maleficarum explicitly describes the definition of the crime. Rather than any garden variety curse or charm, Maleficium was solely caused by the devil, through cooperation with a mortal witch. The authors make clear that the devil can, with God's permission, create a terrible storm or cause an expectant mother to miscarry on his own, but that he finds it much more convenient to use a witch. Contrarily, if someone was proven to be a witch, then they had to be in compact with the devil. They had no other source of their power, and so once it was proven that someone had conducted Maleficium, it also proved their bond with the enemy of mankind. An example used by Sprenger in Instatoris was the evil eye, the fascinum or fascinatio, which brought bad luck and misery upon its targets. While acknowledging that the gaze of certain persons, such as old or menstruating women, could confer ill effects, this power was strengthened immeasurably with the assistance of demons. The witch of the Malleus Maleficarum was a creature like none before. Despite what the preface might say, the text is not merely a collection of previous writings, but is a unique composite of the witch seen by theologians, the witch of folk tales, and whichever antisocial, maligned, or vulnerable member of society that had been dragged before the Inquisitors. Both Instatoris and Springer were qualified academics in their own right, and fully understood the importance of citing their work. As such, the text can barely manage a sentence without quoting a fragment of supporting scripture or the works of various saints and scholars beyond reproach. As should come as no surprise, the vast majority of these quotations are misrepresented or outright fabricated. Armed with supporting words from the Church Fathers, as well as their own experiences, the authors attempt to deal with every argument against their definition of witchcraft that they can possibly think of, leading to responses varying from, as Brodel puts it, terse, unsatisfying dismissals to lengthy and confusing bouts of jargon-filled debate, end quote. Instatoris's focus on the sexual activity of Helena Schubrin is justified in the Malleus. A variety of reasons are given for why witches tended to be female. That women are more easily convinced of anything, and so demons find much more success in manipulating women. That women talk too much, and spill their secrets, and have to resort to sorcery to silence who they told that women are more likely to come down with dysentery, making them feverish and therefore, I quote, more quickly offer children to the demons, end quote, which is one hell of a fever. The most repeated claim in the text is that women are all driven by carnal lust, and since the devil thrives on such passions, a bond is simple to make between a would-be witch and Satan. 
The lust of women leads them to partner with the devil and bear his demonic children, granting them power in return. They are then driven by lust to gain new lovers and to punish old ones, and use their newly gained powers to do so. This effectively justifies inquisitors to prosecute particularly promiscuous women, on the grounds that they are most likely in league with the devil. Witches are ascendant in interfering with the bearing of children, either by breaking up previously happy relationships, or by causing abortions in women or impotence in men, with the intention that they can use the fallout to gain a new lover. For Instatoris and Sprenger, the most evil and dangerous of all witches were midwife witches. They specialised in abortions, and regularly stole away newborns to be sacrificed to the devil, given to demons to be corrupted, or just eating them themselves. One of the more interesting punishments inflicted by witches on their lovers is brilliantly described by Brodel, so I'm going to take the liberty of reading his exact wording. One of the most alarming of these impediments is a witch's ability to cause a man's penis to vanish into thin air, so that he can see and feel nothing except his smooth body uninterrupted by any member. This is the sort of thing that chronically happens to adulterers who are not sufficiently attentive to their mistress's needs, or worse, who abandon them entirely, thus provoking vengeance. Fortunately, as the authors reveal, the loss of one's penis is only one of the devil's illusions, and not a real transformation. Although this is unlikely to be of much comfort to those afflicted since, as they go on to say, the condition is generally permanent. Despite acknowledging that witches had the ability to do terrible things, Instatoris and Sprenger make it clear that they are not all-powerful. Since they can only conduct their crimes with the permission of God, certain people fall under his protection, such as, conveniently enough, clergymen, saints, and inquisitors. The rites of the church provide similar supernatural protection from their spells, while the influence of celestial bodies can also shield individuals from the power of witchcraft. Particularly noted is the fact that people like Instatoris and Sprenger, the magistrates and inquisitors that conduct the trials and executions of witches, are almost never bewitched. The authors suggest that this may be due to the protection of God, or even the willing involvement of the devil, who strips a witch of her powers just when she needs them the most to prevent her damnation. The third section of the text is advice for the prosecutors of witchcraft, and relies on their acceptance of the previous two sections to be effective. Once a prosecutor accepts the author's definition of witchcraft, as well as the signs of witchcraft, they can make use of the procedures given in this section. As such, particular focus is given to the sexual habits of the accused, finding out if they're honest men and women. To be an adulterer, or an otherwise single woman, was much more suspect than one happily married. If a woman found herself in the dock for witchcraft, and did not cry for one reason or another, this was itself a suspicious event, since women were, according to Instatoris and Sprenger, much more attuned with their emotions, the stress of a trial should make them cry. Tears were a gift from God, a gift that had been stripped away from those guilty of witchcraft. So being unable to cry during a trial for your life and freedom was damning evidence of your guilt. On the topic of the defence of the accused, the Malleus explains that, 
If the defendant demands an advocate, they can be provided one. However, they cannot choose their own, as that advocate may be bribed or otherwise convinced to commit to defending their client. The Malleus describes these sort of lawyers as, quote, litigious, evil-spirited persons, end quote, by which it means those willing to use the law to defend their clients. Awful people, aren't they? Instead, the judge should appoint a, quote, upright person who is not suspected of being fussy about legal niceties, end quote. The Malleus goes so far as to state that those that, quote, strive to conduct the proceedings falsely, end quote, which it takes to mean as doing anything at all that prevents the trial being, quote, summary, straightforward, and informal, end quote, is himself at risk of being accused of heresy. The involvement of a lawyer in the defence of a suspected witch was to be avoided as often as possible, but when it could not be, they should be given an advocate that was not committed to their defence. If the accused is unwilling to admit their guilt, and the prosecutors strongly suspect that they are in fact guilty, then torture is to be conducted, and the Malleus provides a strict process for this. First, the accused is informed that they will be tortured if they do not tell the truth. If this threat does not work, they are taken away and detained, while the friends and companions of the accused are gathered. These people are then told the gravity of the crimes that the accused is on trial for, and that a willful confession could avoid the death penalty. These companions would then enter the cell where the accused is held and beseech them to admit their crimes. If this does not work, then the torture begins, although there is still deception to be done. The accused is stripped and prepared for torture. The Malleus prefers the use of the strapado, where the accused have their arms tied behind their back and are suspended from the floor, normally leading to dislocated shoulders and, if left long enough, death. After being prepared for torture, a performance takes place by those in attendance. They act unwilling and upset, and before torture is inflicted, the accused is ordered released and again begged to confess freely. This brush with torture, combined with the promise that their lives will be spared, could bring about a confession, at which point their lives would likely not be spared after all. If this did not work, torture begins, and the Malleus insists that torture must be by, quote, the usual methods rather than novel or newfangled ones, end quote. The questions were to begin with the lesser charges, as they are more likely to be admitted to than the heavier ones. But once admissions of lesser guilt have been made, greater crimes are then more easily confessed to. If this does not provide an appropriate confession, then harsher implements of torture are brought in in front of the accused, with the threat that they will be used on them if they do not admit their crimes. In order to have the accused reveal their conspirators, they were often promised that they would not be executed if they denounced others, only to follow through with the burning once new suspects were incarcerated. For those who actually received the clemency promised, they were not to be released or sent into exile as they would have been made to expect. Life imprisonment on a diet of water and bread was to be their lot, something the Malleus makes clear should not be revealed to the prisoner until their trials were over. The Malleus is full of legal loopholes. For example, it was not legal in the Holy Roman Empire to repeat torture unless new evidence appeared, so the Malleus states 
that repeated sessions of torture were not repeated sessions. They were simply continuations from the last session, skirting around that rule. Also, a legal requirement was that any confessions made under torture be confirmed without it. The malleus suggests threatening the accused with further torture if they refuse to repeat their confession without it. The malleus repeatedly states that, if the trial had been conducted by the church, either by a local bishop or a papal inquisitor, those sentenced to death were to be handed over to the secular authorities, as the church was not able to conduct executions itself. The method of execution is shown in the image of the History of Witchcraft podcast, to be burnt at the stake. Generally speaking, and there are exceptions that we will come across in future episodes, convicted witches were punished under the laws designed for unrepentant and relapsed heretics, with some differences in procedure. The malleus refers to a practice where witches were carried in a basket or wagon to their place of execution, stepping from the transport directly onto the pyre without being allowed to touch the ground. The reason for this was said to be that a witch's power could return to her if she stepped on the floor, allowing her to escape or to curse those sending her to burn. As previously mentioned, Instatorus continued his work until his death in 1505, while Sprenger had suddenly died ten years prior, in 1495. While both had a number of publications to their names, it is the Witch Hunter's Manual for which they are best known today. However, this fame was far from immediate. The procedures in the Malleus were not adopted en masse by their fellow Inquisitors, and there are references to the Church outright banning the use of the text by 1490, just a few years after publication. Even in the author's usual stomping ground of Germany, the text provoked no fresh prosecutions against witches, despite the claims presented in the Malleus that witches were everywhere and a significant danger to Christendom. However, over the next two centuries, as Europe was blanketed in the smoke of burning witches, the Malleus Maleficarum would become a popular foundation for demonologists and witch hunters to support their actions and guide their procedures. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Witchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening.